0: Hello, this is the 3M Inside Angle Podcast, and I'm your host, Gordon Moore, and with me today is Dr. Melissa Clark. Dr. Clark has worked on population health improvements and many other things, and some of the work that she's done that caught my attention was thinking and working on how to engage beyond just a typical healthcare delivery system when we think about meeting the needs of the people that we serve. So I wanted to have a conversation with Dr. Clark about that work. Welcome, Dr. Clark.
1: Thanks, uh, Gordon, for having me. I really appreciate being here.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you could. So tell me, uh, first of all, start at the beginning of where wherever you think the beginning is, and how did you get into that work?
1: Sure. Well, I am uh, from the greater Washington, D.C. area, and I was doing a lot of work on the national level, um, helping hospitals that were transitioning to becoming accountable care organizations work on adopting population health measures as they formed ACOs. And at the same time, I was on a volunteer basis working with a large, fairly qualified health center in my area. Uh, as being part of their board. And I was chair of the subcommittee on quality of care. And I kept thinking to myself, wow, it would be great to be able to take all this work that I'm doing at a national level and really devote it right here in my backyard to helping uh, primary care uh, organizations like this uh, federally qualified health center really get population health off the ground and apply a lot of the work that I'm doing nationally right here in my own community, and an opportunity came up to do so, and and so I I started doing that. So the there was a organization um, that Medical Home Comprehensive Care that was starting up uh, a group of clinics throughout the D.C. area, mainly in low-income neighborhoods, with the idea of really increasing access to care that was integrated uh, around primary care, behavioral health, and addiction medicine. And there was an opportunity to apply population health in that model, and so I joined the team working as the vice president for population health and provider contracting.
0: Excellent. So then take me to the next step. You saw this opportunity. You were working nationally and seeing interesting moves, had a local footprint. And then this opportunity came up. So what did you do?
1: Well, I joined the team and together we looked at really what were the problems and challenges that individuals who wanted to access care in D.C. face. Uh, And so what we were able to discern from focus groups and talking with other community-based organizations and being familiar with the footprint of D.C. is that if you draw a line down the middle of DC, running uh, north to south, the communities on the east side of that line have traditionally faced higher levels of poverty, lower access to health care, more challenges with education, more challenges with transportation, um, more challenges with getting access to fresh food, more liquor stores and cigarette stores in their communities. And so the challenges for optimal health care were greater. And so we really wanted to put together a model that addressed health equity. How could we try to level a playing field? Not so that everybody had perfect health, but everybody had an equal chance of having optimal health. And so we put together a model around that We actually first started working with a practice that was existing that was doing primarily addiction medicine, but they were located sort of in the heart of the community where there were fewer providers. And we built that into a patient-centered medical home and added other locations that served uh, the pediatric population, um, that served uh, families, um, as well as providing not just uh, addiction medicine care, but, but primary care. And we were able to then grow that into about five different locations across
0: the city. So you started, it's interesting, so you started with um, an addiction medicine practice. Why why not start with a primary care practice if you're looking at population health?
1: Right, because uh, that's a great question. A couple of reasons. The first is that Patients who have addictions, and these individuals had mainly opioid use disorder, really have a, a tough time finding primary care, primarily because getting care for their addiction consumes so much time, and a lot of times they're behind the curve with issues such as transportation um, and having also been behind with sort of basic health health screenings. The... Opioid use disorder population in DC is an aging one. Uh, the demographics mainly are, uh, in DC specifically, um, African Americans over the age of 50 because they actually got um, caught up in the first wave of um, the opioid epidemic, which started in the 70s, as opposed to the wave that we're currently in. But they're victims of the same, you know, lacing lacing the opioid supply with fentanyl and the death rates are very high. And so we figured that that population was a population that was often overlooked for care, Um, but they're actually an extremely adherent population. They come for their visits in order to get office-based suboxone and buprenorphine. And so we wanted to build a model around that Population because they were coming for their visits very religiously, either weekly, every two weeks, or monthly, and so we could provide a lot of add-on services at the, that location or via telemedicine and telehealth. So that's that's what we did.
0: And interesting, so you, that you've got a very high needs population, and I guess one of the things that occurs to me is that. You know a typical primary care practice would have to build a lot of capacity to be able to take on addiction management in addition if they were going to serve that same population. It may have might have been a lower threshold to think about the addiction medicine provider taking on broader aspects of care to cover primary care. Was that part of the mix
1: that's that's absolutely right. So it was easier to add a primary care practitioner at that location add a social worker at that location. And then via telemedicine uh, we had partnerships, a lot of community-based partnerships, one of which was with a um, psychiatric practice that had a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and a case manager. So we were able to tie them in via tele- telemedicine. We had relationships with a pharmacist. Uh, local pharmacy as well as Howard University College of Pharmacy, again using telehealth we were able to tie them in to do medication reconciliation. And then we had on site, as I mentioned before, a social worker who was able to help individuals after we did a a comprehensive uh, social determinants of health assessment to be able to help tie them into social services. Through our other relationships with community based organizations that looked at issues like food uh, housing job security etc
0: that so i i'm really interested in a whole bunch of these and want to hear more one one in particular let me start with is the Telemedicine that you're doing. One of the problems that I've seen a lot in innovation in healthcare is that the policy and payment environment hasn't caught up with advances in care. I mean, you know, to the point that we're decades behind what the medical literature says is good for people. And telemedicine is a terrific example of that. So, tell me how it is you overcame that uh, and and was were able to use that you know terrific tool to support these people.
1: Again, great question. Uh, You have your finger on the pulse of uh, payment issues. So there was a demonstration project that was run by the Medicaid agency, uh, District of Columbia, Department of Healthcare Finance. And we successfully applied to participate and that made us eligible for some seed funding to be able to purchase equipment integrate it with our existing electronic health records so that we already had the software to be able to do telehealth. We got equipment for each of the locations and also each of our participating providers. We developed a curriculum where we trained uh, telepresenter at our location and also at the distant locations, uh, as well as integrating our schedules with our consultants and training the consultants on the use of telehealth. And then we were able to use that as a pilot to get things up and and running, where at the same time, payment reform around telehealth had been a very active issue in D.C., so we were able to get reimbursement for Medicaid patients who we provided these services to. There's still, uh, I believe, a lag around Medicare and some of the other payers, but my understanding is that they're coming on board slowly but surely, as telehealth models are, are showing their value in terms of decreasing admissions, increasing the value around
0: chronic care management, and decreasing readmissions. So for that, that telehealth that you guys were providing, what uh remind me again of of what you were doing in that tele environment that what well, wasn't face to face and that its relative value compared to a face to face meeting what, did you have was there a cost in terms of patient satisfaction or outcomes in doing that so what's the what was the breadth of it and then what was the experience and outcomes of that
1: sure internally we used it to connect our social worker Uh, who is at one location with patients at other locations and we really didn't track metrics around that. What we did track metrics around in terms of patient satisfaction were working with a pharmacist around medication reconciliation which would happen every six months um, or as needed if a patient had a hospitalization and we also used it to do telepsychiatry and again the need for the for both of those services is we had individuals at different locations the pharmacist that we participated with was actually at a local pharmacy so she would actually take time out of her day to do the medication reconciliations for us and it was just more convenient for her to be where she was with her medication reconciliation software right there uh, to be able to work with patients and also do education around their medications. Um, and the same for the psychiatrist, they were located in one uh, quadrant of the city and we had locations throughout the city. So it was easier again uh, for patient convenience. And they really, they meaning the patients, in terms of patient satisfaction, Um, very much indicated that this was a service that they appreciated because many individuals face transportation difficulties. So, you know, and we had actually tried in the past just to give them a a paper or electronic referral to a psychiatrist for mental health follow-up, and it just wouldn't happen for a variety of reasons. But the adherence to getting those visits in from a patient standpoint... Uh, increased by sixty percent once we started doing the telepsychiatry.
0: Wow, that's that's interesting. You know, it, it's the application of telepsychiatry, for instance, in a rural environment is pretty obvious in terms of the distances people have to drive. You you would think in an urban environment with a reasonably robust transportation system, it wouldn't be a problem. But that but that sixty percent increase makes me question whether or not I'm right.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, there's the stigma of, you know, people just acknowledging that they have a, that they have a mental health issue. Um, So that sort of takes one barrier away. If you're coming in for a primary care visit or a visit around uh, opioid use disorder and, and, and having your Suboxone renewed, if you're doing that anyway, it just takes away that one additional tier of whatever it is, whether it's stigma, whether it's transportation, whether it's just time in the day, to be able to get that additional visit in. And so I think removing the barriers is really what helped the success.
0: You know, you, they, you mentioned getting that extra visit in. Uh, so one of the pillars of high-functioning primary care is the ability to deliver comprehensive services. And you, and you started by describing A population with significant needs around addiction uh, and uh, obviously prevention and primary care in general. And so the ability to provide and bundle those services sounds like you're therefore able to reduce barriers. But here's another one of those policy doesn't keep up with care delivery problems when uh, having more than one service in a day can sometimes trigger a non-payment by an insurer to say, hey, you know, you're trying to pack it in. Did you experience any of that?
1: So, luckily we we didn't for the most part for our met and we had to really keep an eye because I think on the patients. Uh so for the most part that was not true of our Medicaid patients. Um a lot of them were participating in a program called Health Homes 2, which is a national program. For care coordination for patients with Medicaid, and so therefore we actually had a capitated payment for those individuals. So it it um, really didn't become an issue around payment for those services for patients. I'm just thinking
0: there's a there's a payment model if you have a if you have a payment that says you know for for a person with this kind of illness burden here's a adjusted payment to cover the expected medical resource utilization, then how you deliver services can be inventive and can actually maybe keep up with the medical evidence and the literature. So that sounds like the environment that you were, the payment environment you were working in.
1: And that's exactly true. As I said before, unfortunately, we couldn't extend those same privileges or, or service options to our entire panel, but we could definitely deliver it to individuals with Medicaid.
0: Yeah, uh, that sounds great. I bet um, you were going to go a different direction when I jumped in there.
1: Um, Not, no, I was actually just going to make the point about Medicare. Um, I think CMS has recently, in the past few months, announced that they want to do innovation around payment models and look at paying or providing reimbursement for practices that address social determinants of health, but that plan is has not been well-defined or articulated yet from, from what I understand, but I know the industry is moving in that direction such that practices that are taking the initiative to have models such as the one that I'm describing will be able to have better reimbursement. And, and be reimbursed for what they do.
0: Yeah, I, I want to dig more into this, the social determinant aspects that you raised now because I could just put a healthcare lens on what you've described so far. So tell me how it extends into social determinants and what did you do there?
1: Yeah, we had a comprehensive assessment that we would do on intake of every patient or if they were already in the practice, um, you know, doing that assessment, the social worker or nurse care manager would go over the assessment with them. It was electronic, so it automatically populated the EMR. And we looked at things like um, homelessness, uh, health literacy, uh, stress levels, transportation barriers, uh, just to name a few, uh, depression screen, to really be able to get an idea of the challenges that individuals faced, as I mentioned in, in leveling the playing field around optimal health, and then we would match them to the appropriate services, and that was the job of our of our social worker. We also had um, have patient navigators that can help individuals make it to appointments, help them secure transportation if there were medications that were ordered for them, uh, help them access those medications. And then we also had classes depending, we would look at cohorts of patients and decide what kinds of classes do we need to help um, increase health literacy. So we added um, individual counseling around advanced directives using the five wishes. We had a class called um, the Be Health Empowered class, which talked about how to effectively navigate the healthcare system. We partnered with our local QIO to do diabetes self-management classes. And we partnered with another local community-based organization that had a food program for anyone who had food-related Um, diseases. So very broad. So it could be anything from obesity to, um, osteoarthritis to hypertension and those individuals, uh, if it was financially need-based as well, if they qualified, they could get coupons, uh, to local, local farmers markets. And then it expanded to one of the large local supermarket chains. Um, And that was basically a prescription written by their doctor that then they would take to the farmer's market or to the supermarket. So we had a variety of programs to to fit the need of various cohorts of populations to, again, try to move the needle on health outcomes, taking into account their social determinants of health and the barriers to accessing care.
0: How did you fund that work?
1: so a lot of it was grant funded um as i mentioned the qio provided the education resources around diabetes self-management the local nonprofit that had the prescriptions plus program uh, they provided the funding for that we had our social worker funded under the uh, medicaid program that i mentioned health homes too uh and and then we also had grant funding. We we're very aggressive about finding grants to fund the classes and some of the other interventions that we did.
0: The challenge for me as I think about grant funding is that, you know, grants come and go, but these needs are probably relatively constant. So how do you you're, sustain you're, that?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And advocacy was a big part of what we did in terms of presenting results to payers, presenting results, especially to the Medicaid uh, healthcare finance uh, division in the city to try to advocate for programs that would be sustainable and be put into their budget for the upcoming years. Looking at Medicare waiver programs as another way to fund it. So again, a lot of what we did was getting grant funding, proving results, taking that back to funders to try to put things in place that would be more sustainable or lead to payment reform.
0: So in broad stroke, give me some of the results if you can remember them.
1: Sure. So around patient activation, which is a a validated scale that basically looks at individuals' engagement in their health care, we... looked at a cohort of 60 patients who participated in the Be Health Empowered program, for example, and we were able to raise um, the patient activation score, which is a five-point scale, by two points or more for 75% of the participants. Um, We were able to decrease hemoglobin A1Cs among individuals who participated in the Prescriptions Plus program and the Diabetes uh, Self-Management program. Uh, we were able to decrease that for a cohort of about 120 patients um, by average of a half a percentage point. Um, and we also just looked at involvement in our Childhood Asthma Project um, in terms of the number of patients that we were able to identify for um, uh, organization that we were working with called Breathe DC for home visits. Uh, We were able to increase that by uh, 30%. So there were a number of, um, as I said, cohorts of patients that we did specific interventions for and were able to uh, definitely show a result. For our Health Homes II program, which was the care coordination for Medicare, Medicaid beneficiaries, it's too early to sort of show the results because we we're looking at sort of more macro level, uh, long-term solutions around uh, readmissions for that population. So that data is actually going to be coming out this year.
0: Um, any Does it seem to be moving at all as far as you can tell, or is it too early to tell?
1: It does seem to be moving. We have, uh, again, with the addiction population that we serve, they're one of the more challenging populations only because their addiction complicates everything around other chronic diseases. But as far as we do know that we have a 95% compliance rate with visits uh, for Suboxone, and we're able to roll in a lot of the other primary care and preventive screenings into that. So we're expecting that that's going to move the needle on readmissions and admissions as well.
0: You know, just getting back to one of the first metrics you mentioned, the patient activation measure. Um, I I recall from Judy Hibbard's work on this, and she's uh, the OICU researcher who developed that score, is that if for each point increase, there's a significant increase in the probability that somebody's successful at managing their condition exactly. and that cascades into reducing ED visits and, and all sorts of other more long-term outcomes.
1: Yes, exactly. And ED visits is also another piece that we're tracking, that we were tracking for the Medicaid population and the care coordination model that I described.
0: Oh, that's good. So I'm thinking now, as I step back and think about the conversation that we've had so far, you had a focused population and experience at the national level and the work that you were doing and thinking about broad themes and outcomes and how that could apply to a population that was within your grasp because they were were close, you were working on the board of the FQHC. Uh, How long has this whole program been up and running at this point?
1: Since twenty thirteen,
0: that's that's a good amount of time. And is, has it been able to sustain uh, all the way till twenty nineteen? Uh,
1: yes. Are you you're talking about the um, the integrated behavioral health and primary care, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the first clinic actually opened in twenty fifteen, um, and so it's been about. Uh, this is the fourth year now. The care coordination program started in 2017. So we're now just coming up on the end of the second year of that in terms of data, which is why I was saying this is, this is the first year from 2018 into 2019, that there's accountability around um, outcomes around ED visits and readmissions. Because the first year of the program was more ramping up and getting um, getting the interventions in place.
0: Yeah, you know, I really I, I so admire that the nature of that program. One of the things that always struck me as odd was the idea that we treat the a person's head and their body as separate things with entirely different healthcare systems and behavioral health organizations and substance abuse clinics, and then their for their Body health care, they go off somewhere else, and there's usually uh, even with all good intent there's usually uh, poor coordination and communication across those two spheres, so to see it come together in you know, for people with very high needs under the auspices of a of an addiction medicine clinic just makes a lot of sense so i have I have high hopes and and expectations that that actually should pay off quite handsomely in terms of better outcomes for the individuals and reduced unnecessary expenditure because you're helping them avoid uh, bad outcomes.
1: Absolutely, I mean, I think there's so many systems in healthcare that are set up in silos. Many cities have it such that the Department of Health is different than the Department of Behavioral Health. And from there, the problem starts. All the programs um, and interventions that emanate from each of those departments never get integrated with each other. And so when you're trying to put together a comprehensive program, it it can be challenging because you're really dealing with two different agencies. And wouldn't it be great if, you know, we as physicians and public health um, experts in the field really got together and brainstormed, you know, how can we set up uh, frameworks and, and infrastructures and cities to make it easy for this integration of health to take place, because really we we are, we are body, mind, and spirit.
0: Yeah, you know that's. I had a conversation recently with uh, uh, with another colleague who reminded me that in healthcare, our one of our organizing principles is first do no harm, and we're we're here to help people. We, we could be engaged in so many different types of enterprise, but this is first and foremost about the people that we serve and hold that paramount. And therefore, organizing care around the person is a critical way to do that, which means we have to overcome budget silos, delivery silos, disease silos, mm-hmm. and all these different silos that try to divide yeah. people up into artificially distinct buckets that, uh, that may have had, you know, reasonable origin, but I think are now really getting in the way of delivering care that people need.
1: You're absolutely right. Actually, what we call our model of care uh, was uh, the whole person model of care. And um, it, and it's reflective of those very principles that you, you mentioned. Uh, one of the One of the the bright spots was really the relationships that we were able to develop with uh, community-based organizations, actually faith-based organizations throughout the city, one that was a consortium of 70 churches. And they provided patient navigators for us. They also uh, put us in touch with different churches that had community outreach, so uh, food banks and clothing banks, and some had... Um, mental health resources that we were also able to refer individuals to. And the other good partnership was actually with the Medicaid managed care organizations who, because they were again, being held for accountable for that individual's entire care, they sort of got it in terms of being able to work successfully with practices to really be able to help to close gaps in care that, uh, that their individual beneficiaries who were our patients were having.
0: Well, Dr. Melissa Clark, I want to thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Gordon. Appreciate it.
0: For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.